Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and the brightest in the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. My guest today on the podcast is Sarah Noel Wilson, Chief Edge Officer at, you guessed it, Sarah Noel Wilson Incorporated. And Sarah is a professional leadership coach, speaker, and author of her new book, quote, Don't Feed the Elephants, Overcoming the Art of Avoidance to Build Powerful Partnerships. And we're going to dig into that and the whole book writing process in a little bit. But prior to running her own coaching and speaking business, Sarah worked in talent and leadership development roles at ARAG Legal Insurance and ING. With over 15 years leadership development, Sarah earned her master's degrees from Drake University in leadership development and a BA from the University of Northern Iowa in theater performance and education. That's another fun story we'll get into. (laughs) So let's get to it. Sarah's got a well of wisdom when it comes to leadership and relationships, both in and out of the office. So let's get to it. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Adam. So excited to be here. I'm excited too. So we were we were chatting off air uh, before we get on, and and I want to talk about your your startup because you said lots of people are unaware of your theater background. Were you were you an overly dramatic kid? Like, let's, <laughs> like, well, like, how did, like, like, how did, like, how did, how did you, how did you go down the theater path? That's, I think it's you important. Know, I'm we laughing. need to know the origin stories here. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm like, I don't know, but my mom and my siblings would be yes. like, oh yeah, no, my parents would be like, absolutely. Sure. Uh, yes, I, you know, I was the kid who, when I was um, very little would literally follow my siblings around the house talking to them. Right. I just, Mm. I I would constantly be chatting and following them around and all of that. And so, uh, so I, I got into theater. Um, that's an itch. I I hadn't thought about that in a long time. Uh, We go deeper. Yeah. I, uh, a, a, a couple of things got me involved in theater in from high school. One, my brother, found his way into it. And he was a couple years older. And so I mm-hmm. connected with, you know, his friends and, and knew that, but in um, my elementary, I always just enjoyed performing. And so I did theater and sports my freshman year, and then I dislocated my knee. And then that took me out of nice. basketball, which I liked. And so then I stayed with theater and then that just became a part of who I was. And so then that felt like the natural progression. Although what's strange is like, I always knew that I didn't want to be a professional actor. But it was still the path I went because I loved it and, and it's what I was good at and what I was familiar with. But when I looked at friends who say went on to move to New York or LA, that there was just never that right. drive for me. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too. So looking back on it now, th- those skills, those improv skills, the ability to stand up on stage, to stand up in front of a, an audience 
How important was, was learning those pieces then to what you're doing now? Oh, I mean, in, incredibly important. You know, I think that it's, I'm, I'm, I'm just at home on stage, right? I'm like, there's not, there's not a lot of situations that make me nervous. The, one of the few situations, this is a true story. I'm very, very comfortable at stage. I'm very comfortable being in the moment. I, you know, my style of, of facilitating is very much, you know, following the learning. So I don't always, I don't stick to a script. But I did a keynote where I recently performed and pulled out my accordion and performing <laughs> a musical instrument for people is, is so uncomfortable Ooh, for me. That whole I, different ballgame. Oh, yeah. No, I was like my heart was racing. I couldn't hit any of my notes. And that was actually kind of beautiful because it was all about imperfection. So. I love it. And are you a, are you a classically trained uh, accordionist? <laughs> What's the right word? Accordion, yeah, accordion player? Man. I don't mean. Yeah. No, no. I, <laughs> is it more I, of a hobby? Like, a, yeah. are you like a polka freak? Like, what's your what's your kind of thing? Is it polka? I, well, is it polka generated? It's. Uh, I mean, I do like a good polka. I mean, uh, but I. Right. Um, I'm also. Uh, I'm just. I. My husband and I always joke that my heart must beat in a three quarter time because I love a good waltz. Like, I love all the music good, all right. I get drawn to is very three quarters. And I had my grandpa's uh, accordion, and I knew how to play piano, and I just thought it would be fun to it. learn. And yeah. So, so, so let's move it through. So, so the theater training was there, but you know, that wasn't going to be forever. And you move yeah. into the corporate world and you had talent and leadership positions at like ING, ARAG, I spoke about before. Um, why do, why do you feel that you gravitated towards that kind of corporate field? Like what was the draw there? Well, you know, it's interesting. I want to like, um, you know, I want to go back and share a really quick story. Sure. I think it's, it's, it's a, I think it's a great question. My first, my first day of going into this acting class, it was like my first big acting class with one of our professors, Richard Glockner. And, and I remember the first day he looked at us all and he said, um, if you can, if you can only, like, if you can see yourself doing something other than acting, then get the hell out of my class. Cause he's like, mm. this work is so hard and, it, and it's so hard to break into it that you, you have to come from a place of only seeing yourself only doing this. And I remember just mm. being terrified going like, well, I don't, know that that's true for me. But the seed that got planted for me was, well, what is that for me? What, what is it? What's the only thing I can see myself doing? And for me, what always came, came back was, you know, teaching and helping people learn. So I, I moved to Des Moines, Iowa, uh, following college to, uh, you know, test an assumption that this boy I was with was worth like having a relationship with. And that worked right. out. And we've been married for quite a while now. Um, and I just needed my nights free to do theater and I needed insurance or I needed like health insurance and benefits. Right. So I did what every good Des Moines person did. And I got a job in insurance and finance and I don't, didn't know anything about it. I didn't even know what a 401k was. Cause that's not something right. to talk about in the theater world. You're like, <laughs> no, opposite, opposite. Right. Yeah. Scraping and, by. and, um, but a couple of things happened fairly quickly. I, uh, noticed how, um, the training that was happening to teach people the technical skills. I like, I, re I was, because of my theater education background, which wasn't teaching theater, but using theater as an educational tool. I was like, huh, I wonder if I could right. make this more huh. effective by applying what I know about learning and how people learn. So I got in into the world of corporate training through the lens of, of technical or, you know, technical training. Um, That's interesting. It was like you were you were built, you were primed for it. I mean, it was a logical progression. Yeah, it was a, it was a good segue. It was a good, you know, amalgamation of your theater training and getting involved in, in what aspect of corporate America that was going to give you 
the foundational elements that you need from a, a career perspective and also give you the, the health insurance and the financial stability. Yeah. I mean, at my interview for the ING job, they literally asked me, do you think you can sit still in an, or like in a cubicle? And I was like, I don't know. Well, let's find out. Oh, like, <laughs> Let's give it a shot. Let's, let's see what happens. There. But but something I want to ask you, you know, from, yeah. from that exposure, you're, you're a pretty uh, uh, observant um, person, we could tell. Um, what did you observe about leadership mm. from the sidelines, from the front lines that you started to incorporate into your work and into your book, which we'll get into a little bit. The absolute like impact that a person who is in a position of power. So when I talk about leadership, I, I think of it as two different ways. One, it's an act. I think leadership is an act and not a role. It's something we do some mm. of the time. But when we talk about leadership from a, a corporate structure, we'll talk the roles. So you have formal authority and power. Um, the thing that became really interesting to me is the seeing firsthand and experiencing the like the impact that that person had, not just on how the business ran, but how people felt about themselves. And, and you know, theater, I didn't realize this at the time, but my theater background, what it was priming me for was collaboration, was a deep sense of self-awareness, was building relationships, was how do we how do we work in concert with each other to get the best possible output? And that just, that wasn't necessarily the culture in, in corporate America, right? And I, and so I just became really fascinated with who are the people who are doing this really well? And what is it about it? Because, you know, one of the things, and, and we talk about this in our work, is that managers can make or break organizations, but they can also make or break people. And I of became course. really, really interested in like, how does that work? And so, um, you know, I attended a couple leadership development workshops and, but I realized they were all facilitated by people who had never led a team. And I thought, well, how can I be effective if I don't sense. know what it's like? And so, so then that's then, right. Like you can see where it's like, so then that moment of decision was, I want to lead as many different types of teams as I can, so I can understand that experience. So I can, you know, like deepen my, my knowledge and practice of it. And then at the same time, that's when I started getting my master's in leadership development. Interesting too, and and how did it align? And you got your master's at, at Drake, correct? Mm -hmm. um, how did how did you how did it work out? Where you are now on the other side as an adjunct professor? Yeah. And what are you teaching? Uh, well, I'm, you know, I'm not I'm not teaching as much just because my business is <laughs> taking off so much. So I I support them as Good a guest problem. lecturer. Yeah. Um, so the the class that I really love to teach is adaptive leadership, and and how do we how do we truly create cultures that are adaptive and are able to thrive in times of change and uncertainty. Um, and from a very human first perspective. So that's, that's what do, the class what, what, I love. Did, I mean, as someone who's in tune on the ground in, in many different areas, like when you hear the buzz term servant leadership, or maybe mm. not such a buzzword, but mm. how, do you how do you interpret servant leadership? I mean, is that what all leadership should be? Because I, I, see, I, I see it yeah. thrown around a lot. Oh, it, and no, I've it heard is. Some great, and I've seen some amazing definitions of it. And I've also seen people do two things. People that actually live it without calling it that. Right. And then I also see people that say it and don't, but don't do it, it, that don't act on it. What are your thoughts? No, that's exactly. That's why I paused because I was trying to like think through how I, I saw you pausing. And then I said, let me talk a little bit yeah. more because that's what we do as a host. We provide air cover. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It's like it's uh, I think that I mean. I don't, I don't necessarily use the term servant leadership, but I do believe that your job, if you are in a formal manager position, is to serve the humans that are on your team, right? I do, I do believe that. 
Um, I think the reason that I shy away from using the term servant leadership is exactly what you talked about, is that it's a phrase that gets used a lot. And, beca and because people say it, they think they're doing it. And that's one of the things like that's, I mean, I mean, I mean, this applies to all of us as humans, but it is especially important for people who are in those leadership positions is there's real gaps between how people think they're showing up and how they're really showing up, right? Your good intentions right. are not the same as actually making impact and it's not the same as taking action. And so, so I always, I always pause a little bit when someone's like, oh, I'm a servant leader. They're like, well, okay, I'll, I'll observe that. I know what that means, right? And, and, and like, there are people who, who, who espouse that because they actually believe it, they live it, they try to do it, but it, um, leadership is hard and there's an art and a science to it. And it requires so much emotional regulation and so much self-awareness. And most of us don't have it as much as we think. So how does someone find the self-awareness to be a good leader? I mean, are there exercises? How do you, how do you teach someone to look in the proverbial mirror? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, for us, the way that we approach it is, is first getting really curious about yourself. And when we're working with leaders, um, especially because a lot of our work is through understanding how they show up in conversations is, is liter is literally just thinking about what am I feeling right now? What am I thinking? If I'm struggling in a situation, what needs, what values are being stepped on or what needs, uh, aren't being met. So it sort of depends on each situation, but it's the, you know, when we talk about self-awareness, it's not just experiencing it. It's taking a step back, getting on the balcony and going, what the hell happened? Not just right. what happened, but like, how did I feel? And what was I thinking? And what does that say about me? And, um, and it is a muscle. Um, it is a muscle that needs to be built. And, and you're never, you know, kind of similarly when you talked about some people say they're, they're a servant leader and they really aren't showing. The same thing is true for self-awareness. And one of right. the quickest ways I know someone's not self-aware is they quickly tell me how self-aware they are as if it's a destination instead it's of like you can't call yourself a, th a thought leader right yeah exactly. right, right right it's like it's like instead of the people who i observe who behave in ways that are uh indicative of, of building that self-awareness muscle will say things like well i try i work at it there are times where i miss it and mm -hmm. you know but Good the people point. are like i'm there this is who i am i'm like no that actually tells me you're not hmm interesting perspective on that i want to i want to go back and, and talk about your journey um Four, right, four years since you you went out on your own building, Sarah Noel Wilson yeah. Incorporated. What was that journey like for you going from that? Was it scary? Was it scary or was <laughs> the time right for you to jump into? I mean, I know it was scary as hell for me yeah. um, to say, you know what? I'm going to do this myself. I'm ready. I'm going to do it. Or I'm, I think I'm ready. I'm going to do it. See how self-aware you are. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it was, it was like a long, it was a slow burn. I, you know, I started, I started speaking on the side uh, in 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago. And I would just do like little events here and there and work with maybe a client or two. And then that just started to ramp up. And I was, I was so fortunate that, so the company that I worked with prior, um, prior Arag is how you pronounce it. It's a good German name, um, mm. was, uh, incredibly supportive of that. They were like, we know we only have you for a few years, so we want to maximize the time. So I was able to do a really nice soft landing. And what I mean by that is I was able to drop down to part-time, build up, but it was, it was absolutely scary, you know, and it, it, it was until it wasn't. And then it became, then, then there are cycles of it, right? Like there's like, Oh God, what are we doing now? I've been in it for years and we're, we're, we're embarking on this whole new endeavor. And now this is scary in a new way. Cause it's I know I'm different. with you. Yeah. It's like startup mode all over again right now for us. 
Oh my God, it's part of the journey. And and I mean, I can only speak from my experience, but I'm sure I speak to other founders and entrepreneurs, whatever you want to call us. I, I think I'm a small business owner, if you really want to break it down. Yeah. I mean, entrepreneur sounds sexy, but I'm yeah, a small business owner. What <laughs> has been the most challenging part of, of being a uh, solopreneur, entrepreneur, small business owner? What was that like? The, the Maybe it was something that you had a preconceived notion of that turned out to be either a lot easier, or a lot harder than you thought. That's a really great question. I think, I mean, one of the things sort of initially, because when I first started, it was just me. I realized that I was really, I was just struggling to keep up with things and manage all the different, you know, balls in the air in a way that I never had. And that, that's actually what led me to getting diagnosed with ADHD. My therapist said that she said most adults who weren't diagnosed as children get diagnosed in their first two years of starting their business because they lose all of the constraints that exist in a, in a business. And, um, and so, so I think that, you know, some of the things in the beginning that were hard was one really understanding, well, what's, what's my focus? What's the work that I can do? Because I could do a lot of it. And I think we're still in this evolution of tightening up our focus. Well, I don't think we are. I know. Um, but you know, things like charging your worth, knowing, you know, knowing what the market can handle and all of that, like that, that was a journey for me making the investing in my company was never hard. You know, I was always willing to sacrifice my salary so that I could keep investing because I knew, I knew what was possible. I think one of the things that surprised me and it is I started adding, I started building a team very quickly basically the day I got diagnosed with ADHD, I was like, I need an assistant. And then I, then I just started building and now I have this really incredible Smart. team um, but I think that the thing that was <clears throat> in hindsight that I would do differently <clears throat> is that the work, the work was so busy that I wasn't able to actually build the structure the team needed in order to be successful. Right. Everyone was like in full reaction mode. The roles infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the infrastructure, the roles weren't clear. And, and, and I, while I, while I had managed teams, so this was the aha Managing a, an existing team in an existing structure, an existing infrastructure with policies and procedures is very different than, hey, you have this blank slate. What the hell do you need? And, and then how do you communicate that and navigate that? And I, I feel like this last year was the year we finally started to hit that stride and get that clarity. That is an interesting one. And I'm kind of nodding and smiling because I go through the same process. My, my company, NHP, is about five years old. Mm -hmm. And as you grow, like I've been in organizations, I've led or like led teams. in But until you have your own company, you're like, shit, like now I got to figure out what does this team structure look like? Who do I yeah. need? Roles and responsibilities. And it's an evolution. And it's, mm -hmm. and it's a moving target as well, because you may hire somebody who's kind of a jack of all trades. And as you grow and scale and become you know, stronger financially, you can narrow in and you can start to specialize. So it's, a, yeah. it's an evolution there. Hey everybody, first I'd like to thank you all for spending time with me and my guest on the podcast. This show is my canvas to showcase amazing people from the world of recruiting, entrepreneurship, and leadership, and unpack their career journeys for everyone to learn from. But this show is also a business generator for me, as well as creating thought leadership and endless amazing content. And I've taken what I've learned in the past three years and over 200 recorded and 100 live shows and distilled it down into a digital playbook that I call the Pause Course. Now you could learn how I build, manage, and produce the podcast and use it to drive real business development and relationships. Today, I'm sharing all of my secrets behind the podcast, and you can get it all at thepausecourse.com. This course is for anyone, whether you're starting out or an advanced podcaster using it for B2B and B2C. It's filled with all of my insights, learnings, tips, tricks, and templates. So get it now at thepausecourse.com and learn all my secrets. Thanks.
I want to go back, and if you don't mind speaking a little bit about yeah. your your ADHD um, diagnosis, what are what are what are some of the tricks and tools that you use to stay focused that other people could apply, whether they're diagnosed or not? Yeah. I mean, the, the first, the first thing that was really important for me was uh, adopting this mindset of a Sarah manual and, 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 and because there's so many tips and there's so many tricks that are out there. There's also all these best practices. Here's how you need mm-hmm. to be most productive. Here's how you, you manage a project, all of that. Most of those are largely developed for neurotypical brains. They weren't developed for neuro- neurodivergent brains. So I, my first, my first step and what I would invite people to think about is to be unapologetic about really thinking about what do you need? And, 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 and here's, so here's an example that might sound like strange to somebody, but, but I know that sometimes when I'm needing to stay focused, I need an external pressure that I can't create myself, or I just need somebody there to witness or be with me t- as I'm working on something. So my colleague, Dr. Teresa Peterson, sometimes I'll be like, I need to get this done. Will you just fold laundry while I'm doing it so I can talk it out loud with you and then, and get it done. So that's something that Sarah, is that accountability? Is that accountability though? Is that like an accountability factor? Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's that accountability and it's that external pressure again, that I can't, I can't always create for myself internally. So that, so that is something that's been really helpful is to just listen to and be okay with, this is what I need. You know, for me, I know that there, I can, I can blow through emails, uh, from eight to 11 at night in a really like intense way, because for whatever reason, that's when my mind it's organized is, too. It's yeah. also linear and you're focused on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't have other distractions. I don't yeah. have other emails coming through all of that. And so, so just, just paying attention and noticing, I think that, you know, the, 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 the challenge for me is when there's so many different things happening and then, right. That's when the prior, like my, my issues yeah. with prioritization become really difficult. And so sometimes things I fall through to, the cracks, right? Yeah. I, oh, I mean, that's, I, and, and I, I mean, if, if we're swinging real, like transparently, like probably the biggest Please. thing I've had to work on is the shame that I feel when, when things fall through the cracks, they should like the, mm-hmm. there's so much, there was so much shame in the beginning uh, for myself or beating myself up of like, what's wrong with me and why can't I manage that? Or even, you know, like related I struggle with because my short-term memory is so bad. I struggle with remembering faces and names with people who I might have incredible relationships with from a face blindness perspective. And so like that, that I've had to work on to be like, that, that's just, it's just how my brain is. And, and I know that I can communicate how much I love and respect them. And, and me forgetting them has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with just how my, my brain is structured. Interesting. I never really thought about the shame factor that that's, that's fascinating. So, when it came to, all right, time to write this book, knowing that some of the challenges that were ahead of you, how yeah. did you go into the process of writing a, writing this book? Because you knew it was going to be an uphill battle. Yeah. I mean, I, I found a company that would partner with me to help me write it. Help you. It's, yeah. I, you, out, I, you outsource the, the, the parts that are your straight up knowing your strengths and weaknesses and knowing the parts where you need to outsource. And that goes for, for many elements in life. Yeah. You know, from, for me, there's a balance of, and it was kind of an aha moment of instead of focusing on the things I wasn't good at, for example, when I launched my pot and it's very tactical, I knew that I wasn't going to be a video audio editor. I didn't yeah. want to learn that. So I knew it's better to outsource it and pay the cost to somebody who's great at it instead yeah. of me taking the time to learn something that I'm not really passionate about. And the same thing goes to the book writing. For example, I had Javon McCormick on uh, the other day. I recorded with him. He's the CEO of Scribe Media. They oh, yeah, work that's, with who I, authors. that's who I worked with. Great, fantastic. Mm-hmm. So we're talking the same language here. Mm-hmm. They 
under they have a process that works. They work yeah. with authors to help get the ideas out of their head and onto the paper. And that's what you needed. Yeah. You needed that Sherpa. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great way to describe it because, it, it, you know, it's it's a funny thing because I think there are things that we feel like, you know, it, whether it's because of the type of work we do, you know, like when I look at my my role and being in the space of leadership development and culture work and relationships, like, well, that mean, that must mean I, I should be able to be this excellent writer because I can be an excellent communicator in other ways. But But let's be real, writing a book that's a whole different skill and science. And, and I had never done it. I'd written articles and I've right. And I've, I've, I've done like right, maybe a couple of pages. You, yeah. yeah. But that's completely different than what's the arc of a, you know, I didn't even know where to start. And I, and I know for me and in, in this, again, this was a journey uh, process too, because when I first, when I first started exploring, how am I going to do this? I mean, a couple of things, just like we talked about, I knew that if it was just me on my own, it wouldn't happen because it hadn't happened yet. Right. It's like it hadn't happened yet, mm -hmm. even though I wanted to. So if I do this on my own, it's just not going to be, I know enough about myself now that I need, I need that external support. I need that guide walking alongside me. And, it. and also, you know, again, I'd never embarked on writing a book. I think, you know, when I get to book two, whenever that becomes clear, what I want to explore and write about, I will be able to tackle like so much more of that up front on my own because I understand the process. But, um, you know, what was so great, great is, and so there's a bit of like, for me, I had to challenge my value of authenticity of, well, if somebody is walking alongside me and kind of helping me get the ideas out of my page, my head onto the page, and then I'm right. I'm cleaning them up and I'm editing them. <clears throat> is that really me? And, and that took me, why wouldn't it be? Right, well, you thought I mean, that you, you know, did you have a preconceived notion that you actually had to do everything yourself oh, to make it like yeah 100%. I mean it's it's not being it's not a ghost this isn't a ghostwriter right, by any means right, and that's right. a difference and you don't want people to perceive that oh you worked with a company there's yeah. a, there's a big difference there and listen only only you can answer it. so let me let me let me ask you this don't feed the elephants overcoming the art of avoidance to build powerful partnerships okay I understand the the latter part of that what does it mean? Don't feed the elephants. Yeah. So for the last decade plus, I've been on a mission to understand how do you actually create a culture where elephants don't stay around long, like the elephant in the room, right? Let's play on that metaphor. That's what the book is based right. around is <clears throat> I, you know, when I was learning about adaptive leadership, uh, one of the characteristics of an adaptive culture is that elephants are called out. And I remember realizing I've never experienced a team where that existed. You know, maybe it was because mm. I, I largely was working in Midwest teams and, and we have this whole sort of Midwest, nice, the, the violent politeness, right, is what I lovingly <laughs> call it. Um, and violent and, politeness. Yeah. And uh, all right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that's going to stew around in my head for the rest of the day. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's a good one. It's not my phrase. But when I read it, I was like, that completely describes like a lot of our culture. Um so, so many, so many of the books that were out there was about how to have the conversation. And I wanted to understand why I was avoiding it to begin with and why, and what was it so that we can undo that so that we could show up more powerfully. So the idea of, I'm actually like, you don't know, but I've been squeezing this, like one of our peanuts as we've been. Um, but the idea is that the elephant in the room isn't a person, isn't a thing. It's our avoidance. And when we are avoiding mm -hmm. having a conversation we need to have either with ourselves or with other people, we're feeding the elephant. It's like we're giving it a peanut and allowing totally it to it. grow and stay. So that's where the title comes from. Okay. I mean, that's a fantastic analogy. Who is this book for? Me and people like me. No, I mean, it, it was, no, I, most I, people write books for themselves. Mm -hmm. It, I mean, I wrote it. It's like my love letter for my felt like my fellow avoiders. It's the people who, who struggle, who want connections, who maybe want to be courageous, but they don't know how to, um, and want to show up more powerfully either for themselves or for other people. 
you know, it was very much, it was more specifically, it was written for the workplace, but I was very intentional to weave in stories from a personal perspective, because at the end of the day, relationships are relationships. And while there's different dynamics at home versus in the office, a lot of the same principles apply. And so while the initial target is for, um, for people in the workplace, um, the, the hope was, and the feedback we're getting is that people also make the connection of, Oh, I think my husband and I need to work on this. Or I think with my siblings, I need to show up differently. So let's, so let's talk about, you know, let's talk about the concept of avoidance and let's keep it focused here in the workplace. Yeah. Are people not trained experience in the ability to deliver and receive feedback? Talk about issues. Is it a radical candor? type of situation do you see as a lot of questions here we call it a 10 parter um, yeah. but i want to i want to kind of talk about it is it because they're not learning by example because leaders aren't taught to do it the right way is it a cultural thing is it an age thing all of those i mean all it's yeah i mean well I, one we call that a catch-all yeah it, it, i mean there's there's lots of reasons that we avoid that's so much of the work that that we that we've evolved in as a company is we realize that a lot of times when training fails, it's not because you have a how-to problem or you have a why-do problem, which is we describe it as like, why do you do what you do that actually gets in the way? And sometimes when we can understand like what's our foot on the brake, that can help us get our foot back on the gas so that we can move. So, so just teaching people about here's how you have conversations wasn't necessarily helping people. Now, to be clear, I love books like Radical Candor. I, I, I think that 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 really offered a perspective shift of, oh, I can be kind and I can be direct because that's a reason people avoid. So I became really fascinated in like, where, yeah, where does the avoidance come from? So culturally could be how you were raised. You might've experienced trauma related to it. Let's say you were, were raised in a house where you were like, you do not speak back. And if you do, there were consequences or let's say you were in yeah, a it was embedded in your DNA. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and sometimes, you know, and it's, it's always come from a safe a place of self-protection. Sometimes, and I always like to talk about this because it's not comfortable for people usually in leadership. Sometimes we, we, we avoid because we're protecting our power. Like we might not engage because we're actually protecting the power we have or the connection to power that we might be experiencing. Interesting, Interesting perspective. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so like, yeah, that's <clears throat> no, go ahead. What's coming up for you? No, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the word blame, right? Like there's plenty of blame to go around yeah. in these situations, but like, how do you, how do you get to the root cause of these problems? Like what's the, what's the, the process? Yeah. The pro- well, I mean the process that we, we posit and, and it's not a one size fits all, right. That's like humans are complex and relationships are complex, but it's a set of tools people can have. We call it the curiosity first approach. And because what I was observing is that people, when they were in situations where they were avoiding or struggling with somebody, right. Like, you know, we call it the blame event, right. They just moved to, mm-hmm. to blaming the other person that they spent, they, they, they weren't spending enough or any time considering the other person's perspective in the situation. They weren't uh, spending time really reflecting on, well, why am I so triggered in this moment? And what do I actually need? They just knew that they were pissed at the other person, but they didn't actually know why or what they needed or how to have that conversation. And then the third part is that, um, almost never were people considering the role they played in the conversation as well. So the curiosity first approach is get curious with yourself, get curious about the other person and then get curious with them. Not, not always all three. Sometimes we can free right. an elephant just by reflecting and going, Oh, Oh, okay. Like that, that was, that one was no. on me. It kind of, it kind of goes back to the self-awareness completely. It kind of goes back to, and it, and it goes back to having building and utilizing a strong EQ. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, it's not, 
it's 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 emotional agility versus empathy, right? Being yeah. able to 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 layer and lever your because if I'm being purely empathetic, that means I'm coming down to your level immediately in every situation versus having to be able to keep the business context in mind, the relationship context in mind, and actually be able to help you. Yeah. Because if I come down and we're both at the same level now, how the hell am I going to help you? Yeah. Yeah. If I have to use all my emotional energy inside to get down to your level. And and there's a there's a there's a balancing act there. I want to switch gears a little bit, but let me let me just wrap this up right now. So, what is the key takeaway you want folks to come away from after reading this book? I mean, the main the main one is that the elephant isn't the other person. The elephant is created when you avoid. And if you're okay with that, then like that's like just understand that 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 yeah, that's the that's one of the main key takeaways. I love it, and and this applies to everything. So it's it's geared. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's geared towards the workplace, but mm -hmm. the 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 lessons, the learnings, really apply to all relationships across yeah, the board. Hundred percent. So I want I want to talk about you know your experience coaching. Can you talk about a time where you've been called into a coaching situation where you actually failed and it didn't go the way you were you were i love asking this question where or it didn't go to the way you projected and what would you do about it uh <laughs> we will uh, block the names of the yeah yeah yeah, yeah 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 i you know i mean i think that you know i'm thinking about like the the, the how would i define failure you know mm -hmm. early on maybe there were moments where i failed because of how i was showing up or i was playing safe or i was playing small but you know for me for me what's i wouldn't call it a failure but but when it's frustrating um, or when it, when it like sometimes will even break my heart a bit is when you have a group that's just unwilling, or you have a person who's just unwilling or they're not ready. And I can honor that everyone's on their own journey. Not everyone is ready to do the work that they need to do. Um, you know, I was working with a, a team that was, I was brought in, um, they had some really major trust issues and we had done some really good work. And then situations happened that got eroded and situations happened where the leaders weren't holding people accountable and further eroded. And, um, you know, and, and literally this is a group of executives that when they would get into a room, they just wouldn't even talk to each other. Mm. And, um, and, and, and I tried as many different doors in, but the reality, the reality was, is that, the top leader wasn't ready or willing to take ownership or to do what was needed. Other people weren't ready. Other people were literally traumatized because of the, um, the abusive kind of behavior that was happening. And so in that, that was, that was the first time that I, in the middle of a session said, you should fire me because this isn't a good use of your time or money. And, wow. and where you're at isn't, I'm not what you need. Um, we're not there yet. No. We're not there yet. And so, um, so that, that was, that was a, that was a turning point. But I would point. call that a success, Sarah. I would call that a success if you're looking at it from the outside, because it's so much awareness of like, Hey, listen, you guys brought me in to help out with, you know, get you through something, but you need something much yeah. deeper, stronger, whatever the case was. That's, yeah, are you that's, that's, that's ready for any of it. Hmm. And how, how is, you know, in the last couple, I mean, things are, are finally opening back up in, in, in the States here with the pandemic and everything, but how did the last two years really affect, you know, the feeding of the elephants? Yeah. In my opinion, it made it a lot worse <laughs> because it was almost easier to avoid people when you don't have to freaking look at them in the face and go in every day. Well, and it's interesting because like on some level, yes. And on the other level, what we saw is that actually it became, it came, became better because, because I, you I just it, hang up and walk away, right? Like hey, hey, Sarah, here's the deal. <laughs> right. Like, oh, I'm turning off my camera and I can literally step away from it. And also, I mean, while there's still like direct messages and direct chats that can happen, there, there, there isn't the congregating, right. That maybe would happen as much that would continue. To, to feed it. So, so it's like, it's a yes. And that on the thing yeah. that I would say is that what we are experiencing and, and let's be real, even though things are opening up, 
we're we're still we're still in it. I mean, especially and and who knows how long. I mean, forever we're fundamentally changed. You know, I think that's one of the traps people are falling into is like, oh, we're Correct. opening up, so we're back to normal. It's like, no, do you know how much no. trauma everyone this has? Is a new normal. Yeah. This isn't like we're yeah, I mean, it's we're we're fundamentally different. But I think that I mean that's something that I'm really fascinated with is just the impact uh, that the pandemic had on relationships. Because because one thing that is true is that we got into incredible divisiveness that was on public display in workplaces in a way mm-hmm. like politics were on display in the workplace in a way that before could be kept in the shadows, right? How you felt about the pandemic, how you felt about masking, how you felt about vaccines, Mm -hmm. all all of that suddenly became on display. So the thing that, the thing I will say is what we saw is that, and then you add in um, isolation, right? Like not the, we, lots of factors here, lots Mm -hmm. of factors that to build really good relationships (laughs) took so much more energy and so much more skill than a lot of people had going into it. Right. It's like we should have always been intentional about building relationships. It's just pre pandemic. We had so many more opportunities and like chance encounters that now we had to be laser focused. And because we didn't necessarily have those skills, the erosion of relationships happen in some cases at a much faster rate. Yeah, that's that's a great perspective. So let's let's bring it home here, and, yeah. and I want everyone we'll, we'll we'll talk about the book, and we could get in a moment here. But I'd love to ask all my guests a couple of questions because I love this perspective, and I love to hear it. So, Sarah, what is the single greatest piece of advice that you've ever received that you take action on every day? Mm. The actionable advice, I call it. Mm-hmm. I have Ooh, so many. Nice. I have so many things. I'll fill the space for you as I'm thinking. Go for it, um, please. Something that I take action on every single day. Well, when, let it me... could be a mantra. It could be something that you just believe in. Something you repeat. Your kind of aha moment. Yeah, it's uh, I, like I know they're in there. I just can't come up with it. What what came up with for me? And this so when as soon as you asked it, I I thought of a situation. But then when you added the every day. Then that well, that's a kicker. It. That's a kicker on this question too. Yeah. Because I like to see what, how does it, how so, does it, okay, so, anybody can say to you, what's the greatest piece of advice yeah, you've yeah, received? Yeah. Okay, so here, great. Here's, great. here's the actionable thing that, that, de- that definitely drives, drives us every day is, um, we can't get to version 10 if we don't start with version one. Right. So everything that we're creating, everything we're building, we try really hard to embrace an experimenter's mindset. That's one of our core things. And sometimes it can be really easy to get paralyzed by perfection or to go, we're not ready. Mm. This isn't ready. This isn't good enough. And so we're constantly pushing ourselves to say, like, how do we how do we just get this out there or how do we try this with the client or how do we do this? Um, because we can't can't get to version 10 without starting with version one. So that's that's a, yeah, that's a mantra that drives us. I love it. And and last but not least, you know, you look back on your life and your career and you look about the look back at those times that were hard, you know, those struggles. I mean, think about, you know, before you were even diagnosed with ADHD and you didn't know what it was and you knew you had something that you had to fix and work on and you needed to find that focal point. Mm. And on the other side of it now, when you're proud of your life, your family, the work that you're doing, the good work that you're doing and you want to show gratitude. How do you stay focused? What is your compass in life? Sarah Noel Wilson, what is your North Star? I want to leave people better than I found them. I, I really believe that everyone has greatness within them. I really do. They just need to be nurtured. And if I can be the son that nurtures them, that would be incredible. 
I love it. And that's such a positive mindset. Sarah, I want to thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your wisdom. I want everyone to check out sarahnoelwilson.com. We're going to link it up in the uh, notes section. I really appreciate it. But where else can folks find you? Where could they connect with you? Where could they learn more? Yeah, they can go to our website, sarahnoelwilson.com. And don't be fooled, even though it's my name on it. I have an incredible team of people that I get to work with who are helping us make the work work better for humans. Also, um, as social media, I'm really active on all the channels and my DMs are always open. Awesome. Good stuff, Sarah. Hang with me one moment here. And everybody, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You learned. Please check out her book. It's pretty awesome. And uh, maybe open up a page or two and see what you can learn about yourself in this journey. And everyone listening, remember, if you want to find out more, catch us at thepodcast.com, all your favorite social media channels. Remember, take care of each other. Look out for one another and catch us next week for another great episode of The podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever. But for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Pausecast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com.